Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens and I'm the host of this podcast in which I ask people to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also have to pick one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to forget, in fact, by burying it in the ground and never thinking of it again. My guest in this episode of My Time Capsule is the comedian and writer Taylor Glenn. Taylor is one of the creators and hosts of the huge hit podcast Drunk Women Solving Crime, along with Hannah George and Katie Wilkins, the wife of my interviewer for our 200th episode and an early guest on My Time Capsule, Richard Herring. Drunk Women Solving Crime has a large podcast following and has sold out runs as a live show in London and at the Edinburgh Fringe and also won a Writers Guild of Great Britain Award in 2022. Well done them. We look forward to winning that prize one day. Hmm. Taylor is a UK-based comedian, writer and podcaster who, after studying at Cornell University, where she became a Bachelor of Science, and then Columbia University, where she studied psychotherapy, she started performing improv and sketch comedy in New York for a number of years, after which she relocated to Cardiff with her Welsh husband, Geraint, and then London, where she began doing stand-up comedy and screenwriting very successfully. Taylor has written for and contributed to several programmes for the BBC, the brilliant comedy series Breeders with Martin Freeman, Daisy Haggard, Sally Phillips and Alan Armstrong, co-created by another early guest on My Time Capsule, Chris Addison, as well as writing for Comic Relief, The Guardian, The Daily Mash and Standard Issue magazine. So that's what Taylor has done, but let's discover what from her life the delightful Taylor Glenn would like to put in a time capsule. I've brought wine, by the way, because it's Friday. Oh, uh, well done. Yeah. If I'm going to have somebody from Drunk Women Solving Crime on there and you've not got a glass of wine, I'd be disappointed in you. I thought I'd be on brand. <laughs> you're now going to tell me you're sponsored. Depends what you mean by that. <laughs> this is wine of my own choosing. No one has. I will not plug it. Lovely. 
<laughs> All right, so shall we have a go at it? Mm. Have you had a thought about these things? I have. I have to say, for a so-called comedian, I've gone very earnest. I've gone very, like, personal and just kind of for the heartstrings. So right. we'll see how that goes. No, I think that's fine, you know. <laughs> I think that's when it's really lovely. Particularly yeah. this podcast, it tends to bring out yeah. other sides of people, which I think is nice. And everybody knows you're funny. So it's interesting to go, well, what is behind that? Because quite often the really funny comedy is extremely heartfelt. It's what makes it so funny is that, is that people absolutely genuinely mean what they're saying. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. And I love that comedy drama is no longer a dirty word in the UK <laughs> because it used to be very like, this is one for the drama department. Yes. I'm like, but it could be funny as well. Nope, nope. Because I just love that when it's done well. So let's delve into your <laughs> your store of things that you're going to put into a time capsule. What have you got for me? Okay, so immediately when I knew there were five things, I thought of the five senses. And I love I love categories. And this <laughs> podcast already has a lovely format. And then I thought, let me add a format to your format. <laughs> Thank you. I come from a very pedantic family. So if we can add an extra layer of rules, we will do. <laughs> um, so I thought I would kick us out, uh, kick us out, kick us off with, I am drinking wine. I'm on brand. It's Friday. And I just put that out there. I've only had one sip, but I already can't speak. <laughs> I thought I would start with the sound that I would want to remember forever if I could capture one sound. Mm. And it was really difficult because I was, you know, is it a song? Is it someone's voice who I love? You know, um, I found this one really tricky, but I landed on the sound of crickets. Ah, which is not the first thing a comedian would normally want to hear. <laughs> it's what no. we fear the most. <laughs> the silence with just the background noise of doop, 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 doop. I've had a few gigs like that. But in particular, <laughs> I grew up in rural western Pennsylvania, which probably doesn't mean much to any of the listeners, but I grew up outside of Pittsburgh. Mm. My dad worked in the steel industry. And so he would commute into work into Pittsburgh, and it's very much the Sheffield of the United States, I would say. Famous as an industrial town. Yeah, absolutely. So my parents had this dream of living out in the deep, deep country, but being close enough so my dad could go into work, although his commute was brutal. They rented this old rundown farmhouse who was owned by, you know, a friend of a friend. Mm. We did not own the farm. We did not own the land. We did not own the house. I think we paid $400 a month for it. Nice. Which is nothing. <laughs> it was nice. nothing even, you know, then. I don't think they raised the rent on us for 15 years. And <laughs> the idea was they had this really romantic idea of what living in the country would be like, but they also wanted to save as much money as they could. I've got two older brothers. They wanted to send us to college, which is is just so expensive in mm. the U.S. It is so pricey. So, you know, it was for us. It was for yeah. us to have this great country life and also go to college. The reality of it is much different when you grow up. It was lonely. It was, you know, having friends over there, like, you live where? You know, even mm. for where I was, it was like, oh, we don't usually go out there. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the middle of nowhere, like a rocky uphill driveway that was mm. a good quarter of a mile long. I always had to run for the school bus and I would see it down the hill and be like, no. <laughs> um, there were bears 
that we used to get deer hunting season off and we were instructed, don't leave the house, you will get shot like this. <laughs> so just to set the scene. <laughs> yes, particularly with that antler hat on. Yes, people used to put antlers on their mailboxes because mailboxes are such a big thing in the US, like your mailbox at the end of the driveway. I don't know. I, d- I did an accent that has nothing to do with Western Pennsylvania, but <laughs> no. just for fun. You went deep no one south. Care. <laughs> I went deep south. It's a really hard accent to do. In fact, Mare of Easttown, which is the other side of Pennsylvania, that is one of the first roles I've ever seen where someone nails a Pennsylvania accent. She did a great job. Oh, right. I mean, who knew Kate Winslet could act? I didn't. I had no idea. No. She's been absolute rubbish up until now, hasn't she? So, oh, she's just held back. <laughs> anyway. So we lived in this big white peeling paint farmhouse. It literally had a tin roof that was lime green Mm. and it was a shithole. There's just no other way to put it. But what it did have was a big American porch, not even a screened in one, but just a porch with, you know, like a bench swing Mm -hmm. that was lovely. And we had the wind chimes out there. And I think this summer that I was nine or 10... And talk about growing up in an era where there was nothing to do. There was no technology. There was, you know, I used to spend hours in the woods. We had very (laughs) few rules about just go out and have a good time. You know, I'm I'm that generation that got to experience that. Go play with farm equipment. It's fine. Jump on hay bales. Sure. <laughs> Make friends with the bears. Come on. Make friends with the bears. <laughs> Say hi. So one summer I would just sit out on the porch every night with my mom. And there had just been this huge influx of crickets and lightning bugs. Have you ever seen a lightning bug? I have, yes. Firefly is the, the classier name. <laughs> yes, in Greece. I've seen them in Greece. And very beautiful they are too. They're gorgeous. And when there are thousands and thousands of them, I mean, it was crazy. If it had been the tech age, we would have only watched them through our iPhones because it was just stunning. It was like a light show. Yes. Um, But the sound of the crickets is what I really remember. And just sort of sitting silently with my mom, staring out into nothingness at night. And it's just the most... I'm emotional even talking about it because we're a super chatty family. (laughs) I know that's hard to imagine. Um, (laughs) We would just have these really peaceful stretches of silence as we listened to these crickets and watched these fireflies, these lightning bugs out Mm. in the swamp for, for hours. And it was just one of the nicest memories ever. I don't think of that part of America as being warm enough for crickets. It gets cold in the winter, doesn't it, Pittsburgh? Very cold, Mm. very cold. And I wonder if that's why there was an influx. I wonder if there was an unusually warm patch and maybe that's what brought all the fireflies to, who knows? Mm. But the swamp attracted everything. Not everything was as glamorous as I'm painting. There's some gross (laughs) creatures in there. Um, So what did your mother do? What was her history? Well, she worked as a nurse's aide for years and years. I mean, she mostly raised the three of us. She Mm. wanted to be a fashion designer originally, and she's still very into fashion. So consequently, I've always rebelled against it and have no style. (laughs) But, you know, she married my dad really young, and they had my brother when they were, I think, only 20, Mm -hmm. which wasn't unusual then. And then she worked a really hard job as a nurse's aide. So she was in a a retirement home and would lift up old people into their baths and scrub them down and do do all the stuff that nobody wants to do. (laughs) That's an amazing job to do, isn't it? I can't imagine it, actually. Mm. I'm not sure that I would ever have the dedication to do that. 
And I do enjoy the company of old people, particularly as I become older, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, what I'm picturing with you sitting on the porch with your mum, mm. watching fireflies and listening to crickets. So I'm, I'm also imagining that next door there was a young man who had superpowers and could dash across the thing at extraordinary speed and occasionally flew off. <laughs> you know, so what was it like living next door to Superman? <laughs> Do you know what's weird about you bringing up Superman is that my grandmother, my mom's mom, went to school and sat next to the creator of Superman. No. True story. Wow. I can't even remember his name. No. I could tell you my grandma's name. <laughs> so I have a weird I have a weird little connection to Superman. So there you go. How extraordinary. Yeah. We'll have to look him up. Yeah. So you were there until you went to college. Did you go to college locally or did you go away from home to go to college? No, I went away. So it, that was a real smack in the face of what life was like outside of this tiny little town mm. with some, as I found out, very small-minded people in a lot of cases, but some really lovely people too, yeah. who I'm still in touch with. You know, like any place, it's a mixed bag. But wow, did I feel... Like an outlier. I went to Cornell, which is in upstate New York, and it's a good school, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But it's, um, you know, loads of people come from New York City and uh, from all over the country, and a lot of elitist families send their kids there. It's just one of those schools. And I felt really honored that I got in. My brother went there as well. So I was like, wow. And my family's like, wow, a second child to go to Cornell. But I just felt like the biggest loser. I mean, people had, I'd never seen wealth before. Mm. Genuinely didn't know what it looked like. We had one family who owned like a window company and we thought they were the richest people on the planet just because they had like a three-story house, right? Yeah, I'd never yeah. really seen true wealth until I went to Cornell. And then there's like bitches driving their Land Rovers that they own. And mm -hmm. my car had like duct tape on it, holding it together. <laughs> it was a purple station wagon, <laughs> yeah. you know? So I felt like a real country bumpkin in a way, but um, yeah, you know, it opened my mind up to how the other half live, what the yes. rest of the world is like a little bit. You have that scholarship system in America, don't you? Which lets people in, particularly if they're good at sport, but otherwise it, it's an extraordinarily expensive thing to have to do. Like you said. Oh, it's bonkers. I was looking at the fees because they've just gone up and up, and it's like $80,000 a year yeah. to go there. Yes. I mean, that's that's madness. So yeah, I took out huge student loans, which took over a decade to pay off. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to not use my degree whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. It was a real great investment living out in the country. <laughs> but what happy and lovely memories they are, though. I can picture it. Yeah. Every English person has seen enough people sitting on a porch in America. I know. With either cicadas or crickets going in the background to know exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. And so I have some idea of what you're talking about. The house looked much prettier in the dark, I'll mm -hmm. put it that way, and so did the swamp. So it really was. It was beautiful. Also, that wonderful thing that you briefly described which is if you've got a family, you're just talking all the time. Everybody's talking, you're talking over each other and everybody's competing for space. But then to sit in silence with someone is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, it really feels like a rarity because, God, do we talk over each other. <laughs> so I'm married to a Welsh guy and that's kind of what kept me in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget bringing him home and I was just like, brace. <laughs> I just didn't know what else to say. I'm like, just brace position. <laughs> 
because they're very, it's one person speaks at a time and you have this great Welsh monologue and everyone's, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and this is just crossfire. It's just verbal crossfire. And it's like, no, I have something I want to say to you across the room. And oh, geez. He's like, I don't know how to navigate this. I'm like, just jump in. You just oh, jump in. <laughs> I picture you almost like some sort of airline hostess guiding him in preparation for this journey into a conversation. There are exits here, here, and here. He wishes he had had that many exits. That's all I can say. He did very well. He did very well. We are a lot. I love us, but we're a lot. <laughs> Lovely. We will put the sound of crickets, but particularly you sitting on the porch in the time capsule as your first item, Taylor. Yay. So what's number two? Sight. I was trying to remember just something that has stuck with me. You know, when you you just think, I want to take a a mental picture of this and hold on to it Mm. because this is a big moment. I feel a little bit guilty. I'm going to throw this in there because I was going to say the sight of my husband waiting for me to get married. And I was like, actually, let's talk about performing. (laughs) (laughs) He'll forgive me. He's used to it. Yeah. Everybody's heard the marriage stories. Nobody was paying me either. (laughs) I gave one of the best performances of my life and didn't get a penny. If anything, I lost money. I don't mind saying it. Got very little back from that marriage. (laughs) Joking. We are very happily married. We've been together 17 years. Mm. It's all great. Lovely. So what is the thing about performing that you want to remember? Well, so I did stand up full time for a few years and I was really lucky that I got to travel quite a bit. And into sometimes very obscure places that I really never pictured doing stand-up comedy. Mm. And one of the places that I enjoyed the most was I did a run of gigs in Croatia. Because suddenly English-speaking comedy became this huge thing there. And people were just hungry to bring over British and other English-speaking comedians from the UK. Mm. So I went a few times, but on this particular trip... We went to a little town that's Western Croatia, really close to the border of Italy, actually called Rijeka. I knew nothing about it. And this was before Game of Thrones. So I didn't even have an idea, like, what's it going to be like in Croatia? (laughs) Americans are not known for their historical knowledge anyway. But all I knew about Croatia is, you know, like the horrible Yugoslavian wars and Mm. all of that. So I had this like stereotypical thing, had no idea what a stunning country it is. Mm. It's gorgeous, Mm. gorgeous food, gorgeous landscapes, gorgeous people. Oh man, I wouldn't want to date there. I would not want to compete with anyone (laughs) from that part of the world. They really make an effort. So I did a gig and I had no idea what the venue was going to be. You know, you just, we got driven around you'd show up and you'd do a show. And the gig was an outdoor venue at the foot of this It had been the site of a 13th century Roman fortress, and then they had rebuilt the castle on the top of this huge hill, and it just looked down to a river and all these little houses. And I got on the stage to emcee this gig. I don't know how many people were there. In my head, it's like thousands. It was probably 300, (laughs) but it felt like thousands. Yeah. But, you know, it was a full house, as it were. And the sun was setting right as I got on stage. And I'm just, to my right is this castle, to my left is this valley and this gorgeous river, and in front of me are these enthusiastic faces. And I tell you what, doing stand-up in the UK, you can get jaded very quickly, because it is, Hmm. it can be brutal. You get cynical audiences, you get hecklers, 
And as a woman in stand-up, sometimes you've lost the moment you've stepped on the stage. You know, mm. I think that's gotten better, thankfully, but it was tough. This felt like the biggest treat of my life. They were the savviest, most polite, most appreciative audience I've ever gigged in front of. It was just this moment of... Uh, you know, I did this as a second career. I went to school with my dad's hard-earned money <laughs> and became a psychotherapist. And I did that for eight years. And it was amazing and intense and gratifying and also really consuming and difficult. So to then switch into comedy and get this kind of experience, I just have this snapshot of this is really special. People don't get to do this. You know, this is amazing. And oh, my God, it was great. It was amazing. It was a great gig as well, was it? It was a great gig. Yeah. It was so much fun. So I was hosting it. I was emceeing, which I always really like to do because you can talk to people. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be a tough job because you're setting the entire scene. I remember opening, I asked somebody how to say something in Croatian. So I got up and I said, you guys have just been so nice to me. I was worried. But someone said to me, and then I said the line, da, 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 which I don't even remember. And it was, get out of my country, you stupid American. So I was like, <laughs> thank you. And then I just had them. I just had them. They're okay. like, oh, Oh, there you go. Uh, Self-deprecating. <laughs> that tends to work. It works everywhere. It does, It works it? everywhere, but Germany. Germans do not appreciate it. They're like, why are you putting yourself down? But that makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> well, it is a beautiful country, though, isn't it, Croatia? I've only been there once. Mm. Um, Puja. Okay. Which is a seaside town and has, in the center of it, the most extraordinary Roman amphitheater. It's unbelievable. Yes, I know about this place and I yeah. didn't go, but I know about it, yeah. It's almost more perfect than the Forum because it's so accessible. It's not as large, obviously. It's really extraordinarily beautiful. And from inside it, you can look out and you look across the sea and you think they sort of knew what they were doing, didn't they, the Romans? Apart from the mass murders and the <laughs> invasions and things Look, like that. we don't need to go there. This is an <laughs> upbeat podcast. Um, that's what hit me is I just felt like, gosh, this is a really unsung. I think it's gotten more and more popular even since then. But I just raved about it to everyone. I was like, you have to go there because it's just gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. Dubrovnik is supposed to be stunningly beautiful. Have you been there? We did a gig there. Wow. I'm, my memory is so shot these days. I'm like, where were the other? Yeah, along the, the Dalmatian coast, we Beautiful. did a couple different spots. And well, this was another one. I don't even know if it was the same trip, but we spent all day at this beach club, literally on a bed <laughs> with like white curtains. I have pictures of us just there and they fed us. It's a very meat heavy country, that part of the world. Mm. I mean, they have great seafood too, but they're like, are you meat eaters? And we're like, we are. And they just kept bringing us platters of <laughs> meat. And then the gig was right there and we were just all, we're drunk and full of beef and everything. <laughs> I don't think the gig did not go as well because we're just like, what? We have to perform now? Okay. And there were Germans <laughs> in the audience. You see, it all comes full uh, circle. It all comes full are. circle. Perfect. Yes, that would explain it. My experience of Germans is nearly always Germans who've come to live in England. And any German person that comes to live in England clearly has a sense of humour and they sort of need it. Mm -hmm. So all the people I know here who are German have an amazing sense of humour. Yeah. I recently gave up drinking you know, I'm not sure if it's a permanent thing or just I thought I'll have a go. Despite my podcast, I actually think that's a really great thing to do. But um, all my friends went, why have you done that? And I said, <laughs> well, I just thought it would be a good idea. 
But my one friend who's German said, it's very strange, isn't it, Mike? If you had come in and said, I've given up smoking, everybody would have gone, oh, well done, Mike. But you say, I've given up drinking. Everybody says, why? Why did you do this? You ruined your life. It's so true, which is very telling about the drinking culture here. And again, given what I do as a podcast, maybe you're surprised to hear me say this, but I think there's a very toxic drinking culture here. And that illustrates it better than anything. When I found out I was pregnant, I was just dreading that three-month period because you just have to explain yourself in a way that in the States... If you say like, oh, I don't drink, no one will push you further. Like, I'm not drinking right now. No one would dare push you on it Mm -hmm. because as you say, well, good for you. Yes, it's weird, isn't it? Why would that be a problem? I wonder if everyone's just afraid, like, well, I'm a total bore unless you're drunk too. I wonder if that's the fear. Like, well, if you're seeing us for who we really are, then what are we going to do? You'll be sober and being able to make decisions and all sorts of things. But actually, I've found... What I haven't missed about it is the part of being drunk. And I'm surprised that that's the case. I'm surprised that I've found that. Were you? Yeah, I thought I'd be like an ex-smoker, that if I sat in a room full of people smoking, I'd want to smoke. But sitting in a room with people drinking doesn't make me want to drink. And so I do enjoy the conversation and find that I'm much more sensible in the conversation. <laughs> right. Very rarely pick a fight with anyone. <laughs> There you are. <laughs> Rather than, what? You, no, I'm absolutely right. And I've always yeah. been, even though I've only just made that opinion up this second. <laughs> <laughs> that's my experience. I think that's definitely on the cards. Um, to really go like, no, not at all. And for, yeah, a proper stretch months of time. Yeah. It's good for the soul. I have a feeling when I do fall off the wagon, as people describe it, <laughs> or in fact, just have my first drink, I'm going to be instantly drunk. You will. Even people that do dry January, which I've sort of done, mm-hmm. I immediately rebel against the forced march of like, no, this is the month you do it. Yes, I'm like, well, yes. I'll do it when I want to do it. <laughs> I want to grow a moustache another month. I'm a February moustache gal. I'd much rather do March stash. That works better, doesn't it? It does. Than November? I think so. Surely. But only with your accent. If I do it, it's not going to work as well. March stash. <laughs> I keep going Southern. What is this? You've forgotten your American accent. I feel like I've thrown Germans under the bus and poor Germans. I did not mean to suggest that they do not have a sense of humor. That's a fantastic thing, though, gigging in a completely foreign country. Mm. Uh, to people where the English is a second language. Well, this is it. I suppose it depends what sort of humor you're doing as well, really. If, in fact, you're relying to a large extent on puns, then I think you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? Any sort of wordplay that would be difficult. But if you want to get into politics, which I used to a little bit, Mm -hmm. just observational humor storytelling, that's pretty universal. And some of the audiences in Europe were just a lot sharper than the people of Barnacle UK, for instance. Mm. I'm just kidding. I had a lovely gig in Barnacle. Thanks, Barnacle. You know, there's, (laughs) did you even know there's a town called Barnacle in the UK? It's a I didn't know. It's landlocked. Why is it called Barnacle? It's la- It's by Coventry. It's near Coventry, Barnacle. Makes no sense. So we've done sound, sound and we've done sight. sight. We're going to put the sight of that beautiful yes. view from stage in Croatia into the yeah. time capsule. So we'll move on to your next sense. Right, sorry for the interruption, but it's time for some adverts. We'll be back in your ears straight after them. 
Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code RESTful15. So head to bollnbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. And for those of you for whom the phrase will be back in your ears, conjured up an image of Hamlet's father, I apologise. Still, let's return to my chat with Taylor Glenn and discover what else she will put in her time capsule. Yeah, so I will go for taste. And this is actually my negative one. And I thought, well, put that in the middle. Don't end on the negative one. Mm. Um, I have a really keen sense of smell and sense of taste. I probably should have been a sommelier. I would have been so successful at that. When I was pregnant, I was a bloodhound. I'm like, somebody hire me because I can (laughs) sniff out bodies right now. (laughs) Like, I will smell something burning before anyway, you know. So it's handy. It's good. Mm. And luckily, I like almost all food. I like it too much. I am a foodie. I love to cook. I I just really am one of those people that experiences food and it's like, oh, give me a minute. Give me a minute. <laughs> so the one thing I really, really hate are portobello mushrooms. Have you ever had one? Yes, I have. Yes. Do you like them? I won't judge you. No. I like mushrooms in things, but I, I think I may be with you on this, that just a mushroom on its own, I find it a little bit sickly. It's a lot. It's too much. I'm the same. I mean, weirdly, yeah, mushrooms are my favorite topping in a pizza. If I could get my favorite pizza, it's just mushroom. I love truffle. I love risotto with mushroom in it, sure. Mm. But yeah, there is something, I just find them an affront to all fungi. <laughs> they are gigantic. And just like that crowd in Rieka that was probably smaller than I remember, this portobello mushroom that I got served at, so I wasn't even married yet. Um, but Garrett, my husband took me to his like best mate from college's house who was married, who had a baby. And I just, you're the new girlfriend and you want to make the best impression. Cause I know that his friend had met quite a few girlfriends and was sort of, so I'm like, I'm going to be the one, I'm going to be the one, (laughs) I'm going to do everything right. 
My husband's a really like working class Welsh guy. I was really surprised to meet his friend because he was one of the poshest English people I had met up <laughs> until that point. And I was like, oh dear. And I just automatically, because I was raised in a pretty, uh, we're into our manners and we're, you know, we want to be polite. And then we rebel against it and make really inappropriate jokes and stuff. But like, <laughs> it, we were very much about like, yeah, hold yourself in a certain way and be mm. proper. So I just go into that mode when I meet somebody that's super posh. I'm like, hello, you know, <laughs> I am educated and lovely. And they just served a big, giant, I'm trying not to swear. I don't even know what the, the rules are on this podcast. You swear as much as you like. I don't mind. It was just a big fuck off portobello mushroom <laughs> and it was the size of a shoe. <laughs> and that was the main. And they just put it down because there was just this phase where everybody's like, portobello mushrooms, they're the new steak. And I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they're not, are they? Let's be frank. They're really not. I would love to go vegan. I think it's better for the planet. It's better for everything. Mm -hmm. But I am a, I have a, I'm a weak-willed gal. But so he had blue cheese on it. And luckily I love blue cheese. Geraint hates blue cheese. <laughs> so between the two of us, and this says a lot about a friendship to me. I'm like, I can't believe that even you couldn't say like, how do you not know that I hate blue cheese? Like he went into polite mode. Mm. And I was just like, this is very odd that we're both sort of powering through. But I, to me, there wasn't enough blue cheese. If there had been enough, it would be easier for me to not go like, <laughs> as it was going down. And then he, to the right of me, was trying to scrape off the cheese subtly. And we're just there suffering through this shoe-sized portobello mushroom. So I would wrap up that taste and put it right away forever. And once you've suffered that, <laughs> you can't go back, can you? You can't. It's even being faced with that, even being faced with a little baby portobello mushroom. But no, just a mushroom on its own. I, I agree. Once you've found it objectionable, okay. that's it. You're stuck with it. There are all sorts of dishes that I would eat that have mushrooms in, and I really rather like them. No, same, same. This is the thing. I'm like, you have no idea how easygoing I am, and I'm not going to fail on this. But wow, you brought me my culinary kryptonite, and I think I got the whole thing down. Oh, well done. Do you think that Geraint had all his life just basically said yes to this man because he was so posh? <laughs> It was like this unconscious nod to the landowners of Wales. Tip his cap every day. His family owns the whole place. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh, well. Sometimes friendships that you revisit are like that, though. They're very much of their time, mm -hmm. and your relationship worked then, and then you come back and you're like, huh, I don't know that we've grown together. <laughs> but no, particularly if you had a certain status as friends, which mm -hmm. people often do when they're younger. You'll have somebody, he'll be the one, he's the go-getter, he's the one who always gets the girl, he's the person that, you know, starts every conversation. And as you've drifted apart, you've discovered that you can start a conversation. You're not unsuccessful with women. And then you come back together and you think, oh, hang on a minute, this is, you're not so much friends as rivals. That's really interesting. Huh. Mm. I think, well, and I think male friendships are fascinating anyway. That's a, that's a whole other tale, isn't it? But, they are um, weird, aren't they? I mean, I like the fact that your podcast is three women talking. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of experience of sitting in a room with women talking. Mm. Women are much more honest with each other. Mm. They talk about things that actually probably you could describe as mattering. Mm. So men, for example, will get together 
my friends who I talked about, mm. we've been getting together and talking certainly once or twice a week for about 40 years now. Wow. And then my wife said to me, has your mate um, recovered from the operation? And I said, what operation? And she went, he had an operation. <laughs> and did he? Oh, that's why he didn't come to the pub the other week. Oh, man. We don't talk about it. We talk about, did you see the football? Have you heard this interesting fact? And here's a funny story. And that's it. I mean, I believe it, but it really is shocking when you step back and mm-hmm. think, how does that not get talked about? But I know this is what's this is what's interesting. And when that's broken, I don't mean broken in in the sense of like this relationship's broken, but I mean like when you break that boundary and actually get deep, because I know my husband has had moments where he's like, Yeah, no, we really had a heart to heart. And I just there's something really poignant about that. Where do you think that comes from? Do you think you have just been socialized to not show vulnerability? Is it a lack of interest in it? Does it feel like, oh, I'd just be bored if we'd all go there? I'm really curious. No, I'm sure it's not. I think it is socialization. I think it is from a very early age. Mm -hmm. First of all, you're told you're not really supposed to show any vulnerability, Mm -hmm. which is basically impossible because everybody is full of it. And also, it's, you know, we we don't talk about those things. We just don't talk about it. For example, I've sat with women and I was completely taken aback with how open they are with each other about their sex lives. Mm-hmm. Now, men might tell a joke about sex, but they would never talk about it. We never talk to each other about our sex lives, ever. Wow. And that's a sign, I think, of how little attention we're paying to each other. Yeah. And you just wonder what would the world be like if that <laughs> wasn't the case. I mean, we don't have to veer into toxic masculinity on this podcast, but it's worth talking mm-hmm. about because you you just think of so many things imploding at the moment that mm. I think get traced back to that sort of there being no outlet and there no allowance for male frustration and insecurity and anxiety. Mm-hmm. All these things are the taboo things. Anger is okay, though. Anger yeah, yeah. and violence. Yeah, just yeah. go for it. You know, that's very masculine, so go for it. Ah! Protecting my wife. That sort of seems to, you know, uh, finally, actually, oh. with Will Smith, that seems to mm. have not been the case, that actually people are going, hang on a minute, you can't just stand up and slap someone in the face. You can't do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was one of the more interesting things to come out of that situation that got talked about so much. I tweeted, I was like, gosh, I wish more people would weigh in on the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing, because it was just everybody (laughs) had an opinion. But that conversation around, why are we still talking about men protecting their women and that there are no limits when it comes to that and it's sexy and it makes me feel safe and mm mm-mm. No. Who knew a portobello mushroom experience (laughs) would lead to a well-considered... The revelations. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But then, let's face it, the world is absolutely run by men whose main flaw is that they won't show any vulnerability. They won't admit being wrong. They won't admit having made a mistake. I mean, if if only Boris Johnson would say, I know, absolutely ridiculous. Actually, I'm so ashamed of it, I'm going to resign. And then I think people might say, no, no, actually, no, no, don't. Hmm. But while you say, well, I didn't do anything, I haven't done anything. I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't there. I didn't see them. I don't know. I'm not Boris Johnson. Who are you talking to? (laughs) No, I'm not the prime minister. I'm his brother. Crazy, crazy, crazy people. Yeah. Well, and how many degrees removed 
is that from old Vlad doing what he's doing at the moment? Do you know what I mean? I think it's, they're cut from the same cloth. They're cut from the same cloth, Trump, same. Mm -hmm. And this is why we all wear t-shirts that say slay the patriarchy now, because it's serving no one. It's this criteria of human qualities that are often very inhumane, actually, that, yeah, that makes a good leader. Insensitivity, really. Intransigence, not listening to other people. Mm. I've made my mind up about this and that's it. I don't need any other opinions. It's extraordinary. Well, I think there was, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, this comparison of different nations and how everyone was dealing with it. And there was an interesting article that went around for a while just looking at, wow, these these countries that have had like a really decisive, immediate, effective action were led by women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's funny because there's this cliche about women are indecisive and... Mm, I think sometimes it's kind of harnessing that sensitivity, that empathy that leads to sensible choices and decisive action rather than the alternative. But portobello mushroom. Portobello (laughs) mushroom. That's what did it. I think there are lots of men who are like that. The problem is we're always presented with the men who aren't like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. There we are. Mm -hmm. Well, your portobello mushroom is going to be buried deep in the time capsule, so you don't have to worry about it. Yes, please. You're very welcome. Okay, (laughs) lovely. So we have two nice things left. So we've had sound, sight, taste, yes. So we will move on to smell. And the smell that I wish I could keep in a time capsule is the smell of tea rose perfume, Mm -hmm. which is just a really old-fashioned perfume scent that mostly old ladies wear, if anyone even wears it anymore. But the reason it's so special to me is that my Aunt Diana who was such a special, special person in my life, wore it. And, you know, they say the sense of smell is the biggest trigger to memory. And I Mm. think that's very true. If I walk through a rose garden and I smell that particular rose smell, I just think of my Aunt Diana. So this was my dad's younger sister. And my dad's family, I mean, I've touched them a tiny bit in that they were, I think especially for Americans... (laughs) Very proper. I mean, I, I when I moved over here, it's as I say, like when a posh English person comes in the room, I'm like, oh, I remember what I should do. Mm. And I just kind of go into formation. And <laughs> there are things we don't talk about and ways we don't sit and clothe it and we don't wear. Lovely family, but very proper, very formal, very fond of formal language as well. My grandfather taught literature. My grandmother taught literature. Aunt Diana was this like gorgeous anomaly, and I don't know where she came from, or if she just gave herself permission to say, forget it, I'm not doing this, but she was fantastic. She was all love and all acceptance. She had this really high-pitched voice. She'd be like, hi, honey. She called everybody honey. Hey, honey. She called my mom, Bubblehead. Hey, Bubblehead. (laughs) She had the screechiest and worst singing voice you've ever heard. In fact, um... So she she died about 10 years ago, and my father, who's great at public speaking, stood up and spoke, and we were all just in tears. But he told this story about her um, singing with the window down, an old song that I don't even know, but it's something like, I've just met the man I'm going to marry. But she's singing, I just met the man I'm going to marry. And the guy next to her in the car said, has he heard you sing yet? <laughs> 
she was just loud and brash and she was fat her whole life. And I mean that in a good way. Like she was just cozy and comfy and you could say anything in front of her. Nothing offended her. She had had a tough life, you know? Mm. So I just think, I think she went through things that the rest of the family didn't have to. And she was just like, you know what? This is who I'm going to be. And I just loved being around her. I even lived with her for a time, long story, but I lived with her for a few months when I was a teenager and was having a hard time. And she was very much a second mom. She mm. was great. Did she live near your parents? Um, we were always about, so we were in Western Pennsylvania. My dad grew up outside of Philly. So she, she stayed there. She had been married, had a really rough divorce, abusive husband and had lived in Massachusetts. And then she moved back to her hometown. So we were like a six hour drive from her. So I didn't get to see her all the time, but she was the relative. I think, you know, my dad was always like, let's go on vacation with her. You know, if we're going <laughs> to, if we're going to pick anybody in the family, let's go on vacation with her. So yeah. I spent the most time with her. She was great. And she just smelled like tea rose perfume all the time. And oh, she was lovely. obsessed with purple. And after she died, which was really sad, she was far too young. And we used to joke because if there was an obscure disease that one could catch, she would get it. Like her body just said like, yeah, let me try this out. Like she <laughs> once picked up some weird tropical disease and we weren't even in a tropical place and we had to take her to the hospital in Pittsburgh and they're like, we can't diagnose it. We don't know what's going on. And it was this weird parasite that had gotten into her blood. And we're like, of course, of course, Aunt Diana, of course. Mm. So of course she developed this really rare disease, uh, which is what got her in the end. And she had some really tough, like final years in a wheelchair, mm. but she never lost her spirit. And um, one thing she did every year, and she did it right up until the year she died, she would have an Oscars party and she would invite all of her friends over and they would just get loads of food <laughs> and they would watch the whole Oscars ceremony. So every time the Oscars happened too, I think about her as well. Yeah. So I wonder what she would have had a lot to say about the uh, the Will Smith slap. I should she imagine had, so. I don't think that was that. That was ridiculous. <laughs> Chris Rock should have hit him back. That's what she would have said. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that some people who have a life that's full of adversity and misfortune, you would think, mm -hmm. it, it can turn them sour and it can make people bitter and angry and feel as if the world's against them. And other people come through it and come out of it with a determination to enjoy life that is extraordinary. That was her. Mm. I mean, that is that sums up every speech at her funeral was just what a positive person, no matter what she was faced with. And there were lots of other things. She just always kept up that spirit. Amazing. And was never too busy for other people. Mm. She was just, oh, she was just love. <laughs> she was just love. I miss her. I wish my daughter could have met her because she would have loved her, but we talk about her. And it's kind of nice to be able to share those stories, even if, uh, you know, the next generation doesn't always get to meet these people, but you keep these stories alive. So that's very much something I want to put in the time capsule. Yes, absolutely. Well, she deserves to be in there. That smell will remind you of her mm. every time. Mm. Yeah. I had those conversations with my grandchildren today, this very day, actually talking about my wife's oh, really? talking about my wife's father, which is somebody that they don't know. And I don't think even if we showed them a photograph, they would say, Oh, that's Mandy's dad. Mm -hmm. And all I could think of was the number of times in my life I've seen the man who loved food 
And if you put a big meal in front of him, he would not leave until it was all finished. And we once we once went for an Indian meal in the town he lived in, up in um, Shropshire. Mm. And halfway home, he just went, that's it, I can't walk anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he lay down in the middle of the road because he was a bit drunk as well. And he went, that's it, now I just, I'll wait until a lorry comes. Just finish, <laughs> finish me off, I can't take it anymore. I can't carry this stomach around with me. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Isn't it? And I, I know I exactly it. what you mean when you say, wouldn't it be lovely for them to have known those people, to have known the great people mm. that you've known in your life? But, you know, we can pass on those stories and I think maybe give a sense of the essence of them. Absolutely. Which certainly that tea rose smell does. Mm. Excellent. So we have one final thing to put in there. So, um, touch. Mm. And this was the easiest one to pick because they were definitely, you know, with the other senses, I was like, well, I don't know, but touch was so obvious. And it was, is the touch of, I've mentioned my daughter, she's um, turning nine this summer. Mm-hmm. She is a whirlwind of a human being. Um, <laughs> she's an only child and people love to bring up the fact she's an only child because people are still obsessed with only children. Like they're these freak is she gonna be okay (laughs) who's she gonna get mad at (laughs) no does she know how to speak to children will she ever know how to share anything (laughs) because there's no other way to teach that no yeah so we always joke we're like well she's two in one she is two children in one because from the first day we brought her home and she just wailed for no reason we're like right nice to meet you this is not gonna be an easy ride And in fact, when I was pregnant with her, I had a really nightmarish pregnancy. I sort of like my Aunt Diana, getting every disorder you possibly can, that was my pregnancy. I just, if there was an obscure gestational issue, I had it. (laughs) The only thing I didn't have, in fact, was heartburn. Like everybody gets heartburn. I'm like, that's the one thing I don't have, but I have carpal tunnel. I have a weird liver disorder. I have signs of preeclampsia. Like nothing was okay. (laughs) And then we had, we had a big scan scare when they do that first three month scan and they measure something called the nuchal fold and it's to check for chromosomal difficulties. And mm. I just remember the consultant going very quiet. And it was those those moments where, you know, Garrett's next to me, I'm holding his hand. We're like, ha, 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 oh, look how cute. And it's just been too long without anyone speaking. So we knew something was wrong. And in the way that sometimes medical professionals don't deal with things very well, she just turned and said, there's a very good chance there's something seriously wrong with this baby. And we're like, okay, great, thanks. Mm. The thing is, I had to wait another couple months until she had grown enough so I could get amniocentesis to confirm what it might be. So that's a nightmare period because we've already told everybody that I'm pregnant and then you go into this what-if scenario. And well beyond, uh, oh, we might have a child who has a chromosomal disorder like Down syndrome, but actually there are really obscure ones that Mm. people don't talk about, which are fatal. And that was a real, that's what it came down to. It's like, my God, our first baby's going to die. That's where we were at. So nightmarish. Yeah. Um, So I remember staring out the window one night. So I had carpal tunnel, so I had trouble typing. I couldn't write these swollen hands that were just numb. And this disorder I had that was related to my liver meant that I was itchy all over my body. So I'd sit with a hairbrush called a tangle teaser and scratch my entire body. I never slept. (laughs) And I just looked out the window and I'm like, universe or whatever is out there. 
If you make this child healthy, I swear you can make her the most difficult creature on the planet, and I will never complain. Mm. And I must say, the universe made good on that. And she was healthy and nothing was wrong with her, but she is a piece of work. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid to say I have complained about it a couple times, yeah. but um, no, she's she's amazing. She's just a, she's a tornado of a human being. But the touch that I would hold on to forever is the touch of her head that first year. Um, and I know parents talk about their baby's heads a lot, and that's for a good reason, because they're just the softest, most innocent, sweetest, and... There's something so delicate and frightening about a newborn baby's head. You're just like, oh, even the way you hold it, it can't hold itself up and everything's in there. And those long nights of nuzzling your face on a baby's head. And she just, she had little peach fuzz from the day she was born. And that's, I just remember how that felt. So yeah, that would be my touch. Mm. How lovely. I'm a big old sap, aren't I? No, I'm just a sappy gal. <laughs> no, any parent will remember that. Any parent will treasure that moment. Mm. It's an extraordinary thing. Mm. I'm sure that that touching of the baby's head is not only a beautiful bonding thing, but it actually really calms them. Mm. It's strange. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I think all those things we want to do instinctually must serve some purpose. Although I used to like to like chew on her feet a little bit, not to hurt her, but like I just wanted to put her feet in my mouth. I'm not sure what that's about. They're gorgeous little things. They're very edible. (laughs) My son was very difficult in the sense that he cried from the moment he came out. Mm -hmm. I think he basically came out and went, what do you mean I can't walk? What do you mean I can't talk yet? This is ridiculous. He was sort of furious about it all. Yeah. And we had a (laughs) neighbour who said, well, you know, if he gets bad, bring him round and I'll put my hand on his head. And I went, what? And I'm very sceptical about all these things. Mm -hmm. And my wife one night just went, I'm going to take the baby round to Stuart. And I went, okay, if you want to. And this wailing, screaming baby was carried down the street and then five minutes later came back fast asleep. And I said, what happened? She said, it was like Jesus. She said, it was ridiculous. Put his hand on the baby's head. And he immediately stopped crying, opened his eyes wide and looked at Stuart straight in the eye, took a deep breath and then went to sleep. And I think that actually what it was is that Stuart was just one of the most calm, gentle men. And therefore, Mm. that immediately transmitted itself to the baby. Babies are very good, especially when they're sensitive babies, as mine was. Mm -hmm. She would just pick up something in the room. She would cry if another baby cried. Or if somebody was upset, she just was always, and that's how she is now. She's just at her nursery. They said she is the most empathic child we've ever met. She's just so tuned in to everybody's mm. emotions. And I'm I'm very much the same. And so we have a lot of conversations about like, you're going to have a difficult life <laughs> because you're going to feel everything, but you're also going to feel everything. So you're going to have the best mm. life. And it's just about learning how to harness that. But I, yeah, I think some people that have that really Zen, calm vibe, are like healers. I also imagine if Jesus was called Stuart, I think that would be great. <laughs> That's just such a better name. It hey, is, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> Stu. He's so much more accessible then, isn't can, he? <laughs> Stu, can you spare some fish and bread? Thanks. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to put that beautiful touch of your baby's head into the time capsule for you, Taylor. Oh, it's been such a journey. It's been like a 
it's been like a therapy session. It's been great. <laughs> I mean, I don't usually drink wine during therapy. I think that's the key. Yeah. But um, no, it's wonderful. It, it's so fun where your mind goes when you start talking about memories. It takes you in places you don't expect. But that's why I love this podcast, because I think that's what it does. You sort of give this structure and then it's about what comes up from it. Yes. So, yeah, I've loved it. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Taylor Glenn. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you've enjoyed it enough to rate and review the podcast, and subscribe to it, of course, and to tell your friends how much you love it, to drive all your followers mad on social media by going on and on and on about it, and, of course, holding your neighbour's mother hostage until they listen to every single episode. Thank you for your dedication. We're on social media if you fancy following us and hearing about what's coming up on My Time Capsule. Twitter, Instagram and Facebook if you want to do it. We ought to, of course, be on TikTok, really, with the word time in our title. But unfortunately, I'm not technically skillful enough to work out how to do it yet. <laughs> yeah, sad, isn't it? The theme tune was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available on Spotify to stream or download. And this was a cast-off production on behalf of Acast. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to dig a hole for Taylor's time capsule. Oh, yeah, yeah, I actually do that. <laughs> I know. Oh, of course, it has its problems. Uh, for a while, I just couldn't work out what to do with all the soil that was left over once I'd filled the hole. But uh, no problem, I've sorted that now. I dig another hole and put it in there. See, I'm not as daft as I look. Mm-hmm. Bye. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.